Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 110. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, and my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it was an interesting week last week, bud. I had a baby. David Blackman filled in for me. I'm, I'm sure y'all had a, had a good show. And uh, last fishing trip at Baffin, man. So uh, it's been a lot going on last week or so. I, I got to give it to you, Josh. I uh, I predicted you'd be back October-ish, and I had several listeners that reached out and agreed. And you have surprised us all. Surprised us all. You are back here uh, the first week of July. It's it's a small miracle. It's a small miracle. Uh, so it's good to have you back, and congratulations on the on the baby. I guess Mama and Baby are doing well. They are. They're tired, but healthy and happy, I think. Well, there you go. Yeah, had the last trip to Bath, and we were just talking about this off air, and man, we went down there and just slaughtered them. Had a great time. Thanks to the folks at Bath and Bay Rod and Gun, and as we always say, you know, if you want to take your friends, your family, clients, whatever, be sure to go to Bath and Bay Rod and Gun. Had a blast. Um, we didn't get to do the interview, but uh, we were expecting to have it for next week, so that's the plan to have on Aubrey and Sally uh, next week. To talk about what's going on this time of the year, I can tell you a little bit from what I learned, which was uh, the fish are really biting. It's not going to be as much big fish, but they said that, hey, you know, if you want to bring your kids, especially this time of year, or you just want a lot of action, you're not going after the monsters. This is the time of year to go. And so we went and, I mean, we were, we was catching them about as steady as you possibly can. And uh, I think I'll put some pictures up on our Texas Guys podcast Instagram page or uh, I may put some up on LinkedIn. But anyways, yeah, I had a great time and we do appreciate the folks at Baffin for sponsoring the show. BaffinBayRodandGun.com, again, is the website. Well, there's been a lot of uh, stories come out in the, in the news, you know, from Trump's meetings at the uh, at the summit that he went to. There's one that came out with the New York Times. U.S. oil companies find energy independence isn't so profitable. Ryan, I was at a, uh, a SPE event about two months ago, and this guy had a had a, a graph that had 15, 20 companies, and it was uh, showing the graph from a 30-year period, and it was looking at their income, their cash flow, but also looking at the long-term profitable profitability of of their ventures. And it was staggering at how many of them weren't turning a profit when you looked at the 30-year uh, when you looked at the 30-year uh, outlook uh, for some of these companies. So it's a, it's an interesting article with some some <clears throat> some things in there that a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, a lot of these a lot of these companies when they go in and drill, they produce a lot of oil uh, in the first two or three years, and then it starts to slack off. So. Um, very interesting seeing how some of these companies are adapting to the market. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I've kind of got mixed mixed emotions on this, Josh. Um, there, there's so many things for play, and I, I was actually, I don't think I told you about this. So uh, our buddy Speakner um, left a review on the Energy Week podcast, and what did he say? Where is it at? EMP and the Permian keep pump keep pumping into oblivion. Oil investors are fed up, as well as banks seeing the light. Every podcast out there lauds how great U.S. oil production is, energy independence, etc. All this pumping will cause deserve bankruptcies and increased oil unemployment. That is what oil investors are hoping to see, and are about to see a lot of it. And fracker and frackers uh, cause this on themselves. 
Hmm. And, and I found that interesting comment because, you know, um, you know, as you know, there's so many things. I mean, you talk about offline that we can't get into the podcast. We simply just don't have time to break down all of our thoughts, all of our opinions. I, I will say this. Um, this is something we have to talk about offline. We can talk about it here. Is that when you're reading oil and gas news, you have to understand that that oil and gas news is geared for certain types of audience. So most sports news, for instance, if you turn on Sports Center, most of that news is geared for your average sports fan. Now you might have someone right now at the NBA free agency who comes on and talks about the the the, the salary cap implications or um, something like that. But pretty much all the news is pretty high level, and it really is for just your general consumer. Only gas news is not the same. Um, only gas news is for some some is for investors, some is for um, jobs people looking for jobs, some is for C uh, C suite type people. There, there's all kinds of levels of of how the news is for, or who the news is for. Um, and, and so I thought about that. His comment about you know um, we're encouraging that. And on this show, Josh, I think I think on this show one of the things, and he was talking about Energy Week. So, but on this show particularly, um, I, I think the the, the, the what, what I would say to that is is that when you read this piece or you read that criticism, is that you know we're wanting people to have jobs, and I think we have been pretty clear that we don't want them to go out there and overdrill to drill down prices. Um, and we also don't want a, a, a spike in the prices to where it gets up to 100, which would then incentivize them to overdrill. Um, and so we're not we're not calling for them to drill at will. However, there is a reality that we have to face as Americans, which is if something is profitable, the nature of our capitalistic system is people will do it more than likely, even if it's ultimately ultimately to the detriment of the long term um, position in the United States. So, if companies can make money now. And let's just say for fact, we knew what he's saying is true. And you had 100 companies, and all 100 companies are drilling. And we said for a fact, if they do not cut down drilling by 50%, we know in three years the oil and gas industry in the, in the United States will go away. It's easy for us to say that. It's hard to convince those companies to act upon that. Because the reality is, is that we may all think we know, and we might have strong inklings, but we actually don't know. There's so many factors that could change that. So when you're looking at this, um, just as general about are we overdrilling, I think there's a, a, a fair complaint to, to be made. The problem is is that these companies are getting loans, they're getting investments, and some of them are making money. Um, and so it, it perpetuates this cycle. I don't think it's our job as people who commentate on the, on the oil and gas industry to always point out whether or not we think it's right or not because – at the end of the day, we're not the ones that are responsible to the shareholders. When you look at this piece here, one of the things I thought about was, what does it say that companies have been losing money, and yet the people have still been investing in them? And part of it is, Josh, if you go back and re remember, one of the things we talked about last year was this idea that Wall Street used to incentivize certain types of actions. Now they're changing it, and they won't, they won't return. So they used to incentivize robust drilling programs, go out there and acquire acreage, expansion, expansion, expansion. Now they've come back and said, you know what, that, that really hadn't worked for us. Let's come back and um, incentivize getting back our dividends, you know, paying back shareholders, paying down your debt, things like that. So when I look at that, I go, okay, well, what does that mean? That means that the market for a period of time, rightfully or wrongfully, doesn't matter, incentivize a certain type of action. 
when it found that that action wasn't the best thing, it changed its strategy and said, okay, this is the action that we now want to incentivize. With that being said, we have said on the show that we think, at least I know I've said, that we think, that I think that the long-term outlook for the Permian, I think David Blackman last week even agreed with this, is that these smaller producers will get bought up by bigger producers. The bigger producers, one thing we probably haven't touched on a lot, is when the bigger producers, you have more players, um, you have less players, but but more bigger players. So instead of having 100, let's say you have 15. Well, if you have 15 people that need to react to the market instead of 100 it looks a lot different, right? So you have 15 people who are looking at the international market going, okay, this is the prices, this is where the inventory is at, this is the glut, this is the deficit, whatever it may be. You have 15 people that need to react to it. And those 15 happen to be able to make money piping it and refining it. So I think that's where we're heading. And I think that's going to be a good thing for the industry. Uh, I think it should create stability. But it's also hard for me to say, hey, if this is how the market was incentivizing it, um, it's always necessarily a bad thing it doesn't mean that 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 it's going to work out the best way but it means that that's how the market was looking for things that's how it's done and i think we've tried to say this before and we'll say it again that we think this is where things are heading that more bigger companies will buy larger positions and when that happens again it would be a lot closer to something overseas where there's only a handful of players in the the game instead of hundreds and hundreds of uh, players that could actually make a difference yeah and uh just to kind of piggyback on something that I mentioned a little earlier. Um, there's a, a quote in here, Rostet Energy, a consulting firm, found that 36 of the 40 shell oil companies um, in the first quarter of this year could not generate enough revenue to sustain their businesses, reduce debt, and reward their investors. And there's a, a analogy that I was going to give, or kind of a just a an example. Um, so let's just say you have a company that uh, gets $100 million to invest in this area. And let's just say based on the percentage rates, this is not good math, but they had to pay in $100,000 a month for the next, say, 10 years. And within the first three years, they were able to generate a million dollars a month. That would be about $36 million that they would make back in, say, four years. And so cash flow-wise, they're paying $100,000 a month, but they're making a million a month. So they're profiting $900,000 a month each month. So cash flow looks great for those first three years. They turn around and they want to sell it. They have a hundred million wrapped in it, and they've only made thirty-six million in the first three years. And but from what I understand, the production in these wells is going to go down tremendously. So the graph that that they're looking at is sure they can cash flow the heck out of it for the first few years, but over the long term, how much money is it going to cost, and how much money is it going to make? Most of these companies uh, that that I looked at are actually closer to breaking even uh, once you look at the whole thing, and that's. Uh, I think one of the difficulties that people are are facing is looking at it from that long-term perspective. These bigger companies, like you mentioned, when they, these bigger companies have figured that out, they know how to be profitable after 30 years or 10 years or long-term. So they, they know what to do and how to manage everything. Whereas these smaller companies, not only are they not privy to international um, costs and, and they're not able to control those costs as much. So like, if, if you have 100 companies, they're not going to be able to s- slow down drilling uh, the way 10 companies could and, and, and let the prices you know go back up because they can't afford to do that. So I, I agree, Ron. I think it is going to bring more stability. I think it's going to be good for the industry. And uh, I think overall, um, I, I want to see what the next plays are or how, how some of these smaller companies, where they're going to go, what they're going to do next. Um, it's still a long way off, and it's hard to tell exactly what's going on or what's going to go on. Um, 
Right. Well, and, and to your point, Josh, just to just to reiterate something, if your only business is making money by drilling wells, that's the only way you can make money. Then when a downturn happens, you are put in a very, very rough spot because the only way you can make money is through drilling and selling your oil. If you have other business, uh, other other uh, revenue streams, then it makes it a little bit easier. That's what we're saying with these bigger companies. Um, you know, on, on your point about do they make money um, and the cost, one of the things I'm curious is if we keep the prices low for a long period of time, part of what happens is, and we talked about this before, is as the prices rise, the price to acquire the acreage goes up. Um, the demand on the people to drill the wells, to frack the wells, um, goes up. So their prices go up. I'm curious if you stayed in a moderate price environment for a few years and let everything level off, if the cost to drill the wells would go down. And it seems on some level that you are seeing some indications that that might be the case because a company like Pioneer has laid off a lot of people. Part of the speculation is, is they figured out, okay, this is the most efficient way for us to drill a well. We had all these extra people. We're going to reduce all that now. Um, and so now we can drill our wells with a lot less overhead, which in turn lowers the cost. So um, it's, you know, it's, and it, 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 this is the final point on this I'll say is when you, when you get online and you read various opinions, you know, you're Josh and myself or, you know, someone else it's there's a lot of different things that go into play to all this stuff and i think sometimes we make it too too much black and white the frackers are, aren't gonna make money here's the graph this that and the other and it might be as simple as that but there are and we're talking about a piece right here there are other mitigating factors and it's very hard to every time you attack you, you look at an article you look at something and say hey this is everything that we think could possibly happen and the final thing on this show, Josh, one thing we try to do is we're really trying to give people a heads up on what's coming up more so than anything else so that they can hopefully, you know, grow their business, get a job, stay in tune, you know, for salespeople out there, stuff like that. So um, anyways, I'd love to hear listeners' thoughts on this. So textualongastpodcast.com. We'll have Nate linked to that in the show notes. What do you guys think? I mean, is do we over glorify the, the the u.s frackers drilling in the in the in the, in the nation um, do we downplay the profitability sometimes so i'd love to hear it uh, shoot us a note and we'll read those comments on the air uh, next article uh our our last week's guest david blackman he wrote a good piece um came out on june 30th president trump and she meeting turned first of two keys for oil markets uh so he, uh as a lot of people know trump went uh, to South Korea and China and, and met with some folks uh, last week. And it appears that there were some positive things that came out of the meeting with China, possibly with the trade deals. It seems to be moving forward again. And we've mentioned this before. If he can, if he can uh, finagle his way through these meetings and, and work something out, it could potentially be a great deal. So um, David says that uh, China basically – resuming their purchase of agricultural products is going to really boost the economy. And it's also going to open the doors for other energy um, explorations with, with the, the Chinese government. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. We have the OPEC plus meeting that's coming up this week. Um, they might've already started that at the time of this recording. I haven't checked. I've looked at WTI this morning and it is currently at 59.36. Brent's at 65.50. So, it is a good step in the right direction. And let's go back to what we were just talking about. Part of part of these deals are trade related. You know, we've kind of made our position clear. We're not very big on the on the um, on the tariffs um, in general. 
Um, but that does impact prices. It does cause things to look a little bit differently. Um, one thing is, Josh, and we've talked about this before, is we're not um, we're not sitting here looking at a 100% free market. If the Chinese start agreeing to buy our oil again, that does that does change things. One other thing here, and this is getting getting a little bit of talk. Ellen and I had on someone from Drilling Info about a month ago, and the IMO 2020 standard uh, changes are coming up, obviously, then this year. Um, and, and so when that happens, supposedly, according to Drilling Info, the increased demand for our oil will be um, pretty significant globally, which means that you might see, because of government regulation, an increased demand that causes the price of WTI to stay higher than it normally would because there's there's a, I don't want to call it an artificial demand because the demand is real, but it's, it's artificially created by, by government regulation. This is a step in the right direction. As I put on LinkedIn, I'm talking about going to China. I'm not saying that's why this deal got done, but it seems to make, <laughs> it seems to make sense. They didn't want any contention when I came over there. Yeah, that'd be exciting, man. Yeah, so uh, one of the one of the questions I have with the OPEC meeting that's coming up. So from the reports that I've seen, they're anticipating to either uh, continue cuts for six months or nine months. Mm-hmm. Is, is kind of the the feel. They're not talking about increasing those cuts though. They're just tra- talking about keeping maintaining the cuts they've mm-hmm. already had in place for an additional period of time, right? Yeah. And just for the listeners, if you're on Twitter, use the hashtag, hashtag OOTT. That is kind of the the way to get on Twitter and to, to figure out what's going on with a lot of old guest stuff, especially trade uh, deals and um, trader type stuff. But it is good. There's a lot of stuff. I'm going here now. Uh, Nate sent some notes said that the OPEC meeting has started about an hour ago, um, but I don't see any anything on there. It feels like the expectation is to extend the cuts. Which it means if Trump gets a deal done with China, um, and the and they extend the cuts, that could be good. Final thing, I'll just throw this out there. I'm sure Ellen and I will talk about this on Energy Week. If Trump gets a deal done with China, I would expect the positions on North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela to become a little bit more clear, because those are all tied together. And we have to remember that Russia and China are the two biggest backers of Venezuela. China is the biggest benefactor of North Korea. China also is tied up with Iran. So when these deals are getting done, it's not a a binary U.S., China, we get a deal done, there we go. There's other things that are in play that don't often get talked about. So not only if we get this deal done, what would be important for the U.S. oil oil economy as far as um, exporting to China, it's going to be important to see what happens in with Iran, with Venezuela, and with North Korea. We kind of joked about this article, what, a year or two ago, uh, oil prices fell on fear of Trump meeting with North Korea. <laughs> well, he actually stepped foot in North Korea on what, Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is. So I'm surprised the prices didn't go bonkers over that. But in all seriousness, if the China deal gets done, the thing, for the, thing, the thing for the listeners to watch out is, what then happens with Iran? What happens with Venezuela? What happens with North Korea? Because even, even if it's not publicly uh, available, there will be some outline deals um, for how the administration will handle those situations as well. Well, just uh, just to hit one point here, uh, analysts at Barclays and investment banks said unless the production cuts continue, the price for Brent crude, the international standard, could slide to $50 a barrel range from the current 66 A Brent price of 50 would equate to a WTI price of 42 too low for many U.S. shale producers to remain profitable. So whether or not, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but 
we expect the cuts to continue. Uh, so outlook is optimistic, but if, if they weren't to, if they cut the, you know, if they stopped the cuts and you know, open the, the floodgates, this is what we'd be looking at basically, you know, or going back to 42 WTI, which right. squeeze on a lot of companies. So we want them to continue to cuts for sure. So yeah, it's interesting. So let's think about that. Let's say that they, they take the cuts and they, they, they get rid of them. So prices fall to 42. At that point, the question is, is how long can some of these U.S. producers stay in business? Because we know that plenty of them can't stay in business at 42 uh, for a long period of time. So how long do they stay in business before they start getting absorbed by bigger companies? Uh, how long do they keep trying to drill just to keep their acreage? Because that's part of the deal as we talked about before, is that sometimes companies will drill just to keep their acreage, even though it's not profitable. Well, now, if the price goes to 42 and there's no end in sight, if you will, you could sit back and go, okay, well, um, we might want to sell a lot quicker than we did last time. So there's a lot of things to consider. With all that being said, Josh, that's all true. But let's just suppose that the U.S. and Iran actually go to war in a week or two because they, instead of shooting down an unmanned drone, they attack a, one of our naval ships. Then all of this is moot. So it's, it's really kind of hard. It's, it's So um, these are all things that we need to be looking at, all things we need to be tracking, um, and they're all fair points. I do think, from what I've heard, the cuts will be extended. If they don't, though, it could be bad for the industry. And um, with that being said, if we saw the prices start to fall, how quick would how quickly would we see companies turn over to other companies, be bought up, go to file for bankruptcy, etc.? As that happens, you would expect the drilling to slow down, to stop, which means the prices should come back up. But that could be a year, year and a half, two years before all that kind of works itself out. Conoco Phillips, uh, they're gearing up for a heavy round of Eagle for projects. So uh, I'm keeping an eye on them. They are drilling in DeWitt County and Carnes County primarily. Uh, they they filed for 80 drilling permits. All of them have been in South Texas. So Conoco Phillips is one of the bigger players in the Eagleford, and they're gearing up. They just uh, there's 13 wells in in DeWitt and Carnes that they're planning to drill here pretty soon. So um, it's interesting to see some of these companies that are uh, starting to target the the Eagleford. You know, uh, it, it's it, it's really started to, to pick up here in the last, I'd say, three months. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, um, you know, I think we we talked about Conoco a while back, and they and you know they're not as aggressive as some companies. They like to play a little bit more safe, a little bit more stable, and the Eagleford probably actually gives them a benefit. That is one of the things we talked about on the show before is when you look at this stuff, you go, man, the Permian's where it's at. But there's also opportunity in other basins, other shell plays where it's not as competitive. Think the infrastructure might be a little bit better built out. The risk is a little lower. The returns are a little lower as well. Um, so I'm not surprised to see Conoco here. But um, you also see that uh, Chesapeake is also looking to um, re- uh, do some, uh, I think it's 12 wells in the Eagleford shell. So. I think for some folks, Josh, that this is going to be the, what we see is we continue to see that the the smaller plays, I say smaller, um, the, the less sexy plays, if you will, are going to get attention because the economics are just a little bit differently there, a little bit different there. Yeah, and just uh, just uh, another note, uh, in Haynesville, the Sabine, uh, Sabine Oil and Gas is seeking permission to drill two new wells in the Mindenfield and Cotton Valley. Uh, so I, I'm, I think that Haynesville is about to start picking back up uh, based on some of the stuff that I'm seeing. I'm, I'm, uh, I expect several companies to start targeting the area a little bit more 
aggressively. And now to the Texas roundup. Uh, so let's kick things off with some bad news, Ryan. There were two killed, one injured at Shell Deepwater Platform. Uh, prayers out, you know, thoughts, prayers, all the all the family members. Uh, not not much information has been released on the two people that were killed or the one that was injured. They're trying to keep their their names you know, under wraps so that the families can grieve and not have you know too much uh, attention from the media. Apparently, they were. Uh, preparing to do a security uh, exercise, safety exercise, and uh, things must have went awry, and uh, one was you know, pretty badly injured, and the other two didn't make it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's just kind of crazy. It's, uh, it was a training exercise, and um, yeah, something went bad. So um, bad news there for sure. Next one, Alliance Resource Partners snags 9,000 acres in the Permian. Um, so Wing Resources is selling its assets for $145 million, uh, and Alliance Resources is picking that up. So there's someone you might want to keep an eye on. Uh, Rattler Midstream, I love, I love I love all their stuff, man. That, uh, <laughs> they got it going on, don't they? They do, man. They, they have some <laughs> their good name stuff. and department needs a raise. That's right. That's right. So uh, last month, uh, Permian Basin-focused oil driller Diamondback quietly completed the initial public offering the IPO of its midstream subsidiary, Rattler Midstream. They raised more than $750 million by selling 29% stake in Rattler, making it the biggest energy-related IPO of the year. So with this information, um, I, I, think, I think they're gearing up to uh, do some pretty big projects. I know um, and they hold a 10% interest in the Epic project and, uh, and a 10% interest in the Gray Oak pipeline. So their midstream sector, uh, I expect to, to continue to do a pretty big thing. So, yeah, and, and one thing on that, Josh, real quick, we talk about these companies who we, we've looked at the Diamondbacks up before. And we said, Geez, man, they are really close on some of these margins. Um, but if they're going to build out a midstream division – that can not only service their own pot, their own their own wells, but other people's wells. Um, then you kind of get into that position where all of a sudden you could make money in other areas doing other things, which then low, um, offsets some of your burden that you have um, and increases your revenue um, by partnering with other uh, other MPs. So this is kind of some of that stuff we've talked about. Here it is with someone who's not a not a super major, but someone who starts out as EMP and says, you know what, we're going to go ahead and and then build our own pipelines and. Um, you know, try to try to expand our, our footprint. At, at least it helps uh, give you know a little extra room on some of those margins. You know, they can they can uh, survive in, in tougher times if they can get their get both of them set up. And the last one, uh, another piece of bad news: uh, Weatherford expected to file for bankruptcy on Monday. Sergio Chapa released this on June twenty eighth. So Weatherford pretty big company. Uh, I was shocked to see that they're going to be filing for bankruptcy. Uh, based on some of the information, it was something that people have been anticipating for a while. I just wasn't aware of it. But uh, So the Weatherford International said Friday, nearly 80% of its creditors are backing its reorganization plan and expects to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in Houston on Monday, which I believe would be today yeah. uh, that, that's, that that's happened. So they were saddled with $7.6 billion in debt. And they haven't made a profit since the third quarter of 2014. Yeesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not good stuff with Weatherford. I, I'm just curious. I mentioned a minute ago that I'm not saying it's because I'm looking at going to China that they got the deal done. 
but it, it looks that way. On the flip side, you come back to the show and all you have is bad news. I'm not saying that you brought the bad news, but good Lord, man. I mean, you come back and people are filing for bankruptcy. So you got, I, I think it's indicative of the fact that I've been gone. Just everything starts to unravel when I'm gone. So <laughs> all the things happened last week. We're reporting on them this week, so I wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave that up for the listeners to decide. Uh, <laughs> all right, Josh, anything else before we get out of here? Uh, I think that's it, man. Okay, well, be sure to thank our sponsor, Bath & Baker Rod & Gun, by going to bathandbakerrodandgun.com. Take your friends, family, clients, co-workers, whomever you want. Um, go down there, rip a little lip like Josh and I have. For those of you keeping score at home, I did bring home the championship belt between me and Josh. And so it's, uh, it is nestled over my mantle with a nice fire going underneath it. Um, unfortunately, we have no more trips planned, so Josh can't even challenge for the belt but anyways that is it so bathbayrodnagun.com josh we're not out and about any conferences or anything are we that we have on the agenda uh nothing too soon i think there's a couple of things that we have uh i think either next week or the week after that that we're looking at but okay nothing this week yeah this is the week of the fourth so everyone have a great fourth of july holiday be safe out there and until next time keep climbing Thank you.